0: Producing the TIAC 4 channel recorder.
1: You're listening. To X-Ray FM. TXRY Portland. 107.1 91.1 FM. Interstitial music. We get to City Quill. Enjoy. Alright folks, we're about to get over to City Club. Hope you enjoyed that music, that was the Grateful Dead, back in Pigpen. Ron Pigpen was part of the band, one of my favorite times. Uh, hope you enjoyed listening to X-Ray, remember you can donate. Go find that big blue don- donate button and uh, enjoy City Club guys.
2: Portions
3: of the and on Laurel Porter joined KGW in 2000 after a dynamic career in broadcasting. She anchors KGW News on weeknights and co-anchors KGW News at 11. She also hosts KGW's current affairs current affairs show, Straight Talk, which airs Friday nights. And in that role, won the 2015 Northwest Regional Emmy for Best Host Moderator. David Molko joined KGW in January 2022 as an evening news anchor. A five-time Emmy award-winning journalist and television news anchor and correspondent, he has over 15 years of experience in international, national, and local storytelling. Laurel and David, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you, Caitlin. And we would like to welcome all of you watching to the 2022 primary debate between the leading Democratic candidates in the race for Oregon governor.
0: Yeah, we are proud to be partnering with the City Club of Portland. And while Laurel and I together will have the final say here on questions we pose, the City Club has established the entry threshold for the candidates to join the debate, as well as guidelines for the overall format of the next 90 minutes here.
2: So let's introduce you to the candidates joining us virtually. Tobias Reed was elected Oregon's 29th State Treasurer in 2016. Before that, he worked in the U.S. Treasury and in shoe development at Nike as a liaison between designers, engineers, and manufacturing units. He was elected to the Oregon House in 2006. Where he served for a decade, representing Beaverton and parts of Southwest Portland. He lives in Beaverton and is now in his second term as state treasurer.
0: Antina Kotek is Oregon's former House Speaker of nearly ten years and was the longest tenured Speaker in state history. She was first elected to the House in two thousand six, as well after working for nonprofits that included the Oregon Food Bank. In 2013, her colleagues elected her the country's first openly lesbian House speaker. She resigned from that role earlier this year to focus on her campaign for governor, and she lives in North Portland.
2: Okay, let's talk about some ground rules now. We'll begin with opening statements, followed by an open question and answer section where David and I will ask you questions on everything from homelessness to education to law and order. The candidate will have 90 seconds to answer that initial question. Following that, the other candidate will have 90 seconds to respond. The candidates will also, and this is fun, later on will have the opportunity to ask each other a question. Those responses should be kept to 60 seconds, and if David and I ask you a follow-up question, keep those responses to 60 seconds as well. The City Club does have a timekeeper and the candidates can see that time that timekeeper may also mute candidates if they go much beyond their allotted time
0: all right candidates both of you have agreed to observe those limits and to be respectful of one another's time the city club has also designated what they are calling a 30-second free speech pass you may use to further make a point at any stage of the q a here candidates you each have two of those two free speech passes each Following that, we're going to have a quick lightning round to take a breath and then a question from each of you to each other, as Laurel mentioned. And finally, we're going to wrap up with some questions we have selected from those submitted by City Club members, followed by your closing statements. A lot to get through here.
2: And a quick note before we get started, former House Speaker Kotech and Treasurer Reed, you both agreed to be addressed by your first names as we progress through the debate so we had an opening coin toss earlier, just a few minutes ago. And Treasurer Reed will go first with the opening statement, followed by former House Speaker Tina Kotek. And Tina Kotek will get the first question after that. So, Treasurer Reed, you have two minutes now for your opening statement. You may begin.
1: Thanks, Laurel. Thanks, David. And thanks to City Club for having us uh, today. This is a big question and a big decision in front of uh, Oregonians, and I think it's going to have a lot to do with what sort of future we're going to have together. We have a choice. We can choose more of the same, the status quo, or we can choose a change in direction, and I think the evidence for the change we need is all around us. We see too many of our fellow Oregonians on the street living in unsafe and unhealthy conditions that are not fair to them and certainly not fair to people who want to use parks and public spaces and and to small business owners. We're seeing a lot of our fellow Oregonians being injured or killed as a result of gun violence. And every family I know is really concerned about the experience their kids are having in public education. We are, I think, at risk of losing confidence and engagement in our society, and that bodes poorly for for our future. I think a lot of this stems from the disconnect between the good intentions we have in Oregon and the lack of follow through. We need a governor who is willing to say what most of us already know, we're doing today isn't working we need a governor who is willing to articulate a vision for the future the long-run future and the ability to get it done it's not just enough to pass bills or appropriate money we need a governor who is willing to hold people accountable and to deliver results that oregonians need and deserve that's what i want to bring to the race as treasurer i've learned how to do this i think when we reconnect when we build our confidence together we'll be able to invest in the brighter future that we want for ourselves and for our kids. That's why I'm asking for your vote. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Treasurer Reed, former House Speaker, Tina Kotek, uh, it's your turn now for opening statements. You have two minutes. You may begin.
3: First of all, I wanna thank the Portland City Club for organizing today's, today's debate. The civic engagement is so important. And thank you, KGW, for being a media partner so so more people can uh, follow this discussion. My name is Tina Kotek. I'm really proud to have served as your house speaker for nine years, longer than anyone else in Oregon's history. Many of you know me as a state representative and as your speaker, but at my core, I'm an advocate and I'm a problem solver. I started my career at Oregon Food Bank more than 20 years ago, traveling around the state, listening to folks who needed an emergency food box. One thing was very clear from the start. It was never just about food. It was about low wages, medical debt, high rents, and so much more. I have never forgotten those stories. That's why I do this work. It's why I got into public service in the first place, to fight for Oregonians. And that's why as speaker, I led the way to raise the minimum wage, expand access to health insurance for all Oregonians, fought and won to finally invest in our schools by making a record $1 billion more per year available to our public schools with the Student Success Act. And I passed the nation's strongest abortion access law so that reproductive rights are protected here in Oregon no matter what happens at the Supreme Court. Listen, it's easy to talk about our problems. It's tough to actually solve them. And that's what I do. I get things across the finish line. I fix problems. I look under the hood and I sweat the details. That's what you've seen for me as your speaker. And that's what you'll get from me as your governor. It's never been more important to have someone in the governor's office who has demonstrated the values of putting people first and the ability to deliver on those priorities. That's why I'm running for governor and that's why I hope that I will earn your vote. Thank you.
2: And thank you for that, both candidates. Our first question is going to go to former speaker, Tina Kotek. Now there seem to be a lot of similarities between you and your opponent when it comes to priorities and values. Uh, Tina, what do you think is the biggest difference between you and Tobias that should matter to voters?
3: Well, thank you for the question. As I mentioned in my opening statement, it's about being able to get things done. Um, Bias and I came into the legislature together, and yet I have the track record of nine years as speaker as moving very significant legislation. And I want to be clear, those things don't happen easily. They don't happen overnight. They don't happen on the first try. We were three to four years before we got the Student Success Act passed in the legislature to bring a billion dollars more per year to our schools. Well, I think the difference is, is that I know how to bring folks together. I have demonstrated publicly of how to take on very tough topics, make sure everyone gets heard, identify a solution and put it into into legislation. But I would, would say at this point, that's not enough. I'm running to governor because you have to follow through on those things. The things that the legislature has passed are still waiting to be done in some ways. I wanna make sure, for example, that the paid family medical leave insurance program that is one of the strongest in the country that I helped negotiate actually gets implemented at the employment department. That's why I'm running for governor to make sure that the things that I've been able to do in the legislature actually happen to improve the lives of Oregonians.
2: All right, Treasury, now you get to respond to that. And also what do you think is the biggest difference between you and Tina Kotek?
1: I think the biggest difference is between legislative service and executive service. It is really important to know how to pass bills and to approve budgets. In fact, uh, the Speaker is the the most powerful uh, lawmaker in in the state in many ways, and the former Speaker was there for a decade. I'm glad to hear this this concern about uh, urgency and execution, uh, but I can't help observe that, that that opportunity existed for a long time. For me, it has been a really important experience to, to learn what happens after bills are passed and what, uh, when, when, when budgets are, are approved. Uh, we've, we've taken um, concepts to execution. Instead of having a, a long delay about paid family leave, um, we executed and implemented the nation's first opt-out retirement savings program. Uh, Five years later, we have 115,000 people with funded IRA accounts. They've saved $150 million. That number goes up regularly. And it's a program that has seen its public support increase. So I think what Oregonians are looking for is someone who can deliver those results, uh, who can go beyond uh, the ideas, beyond the passage of legislation, the approval of budgets, uh, and deliver the results that Oregonians need and want.
0: All right, Tobias, thank you. And thank you both for keeping your remarks to time as we move through here. Next question, former state representative Jules Bailey, a Democrat in an interview recently called Oregon, a quote, high tax state with low services, end quote. Stuff is not working, he said, using a different four letter word that is not for a family friendly audience here. In your view, what has been the biggest failure in the Kate Brown administration? Hindsight being 2020, what would you have done differently? And what would you do as governor to fix things? Tobias, you'll go first here.
1: The first thing I do is ask for the resignations of every agency director, not because there's necessarily anything wrong with individuals, but to prompt the conversation about where I would want to head and to make sure that we have a, a consistent alignment there. This is not to say I want to be surrounded by yes people, I definitely want to be surrounded by a variety of opinions, but to have a fundamental understanding uh, of our orientation. We need to be motivated by the fact that vulnerable Oregonians are not getting the help they need, whether it's the, uh, the breakdown of our unemployment benefits system, our, our inability to get rental assistance that people need, it, or that delayed paid family leave program, we need a governor who is willing to make sure that uh, state agencies have the resources they need to back them uh, when they are doing that work and to follow through. Uh, I think the former representative um, is is correct. Um, we are not following through on those details and matching our good intentions with our execution uh, is the way that, uh, that we have to make progress in that regard. Tina, same question and your
0: response there.
3: Yeah, well, I've uh, been talking to a lot of Oregonians in this campaign. And they're frustrated. And I'm frustrated too. That's why I'm running for governor. I've worked to make sure that we've had budgets and legislation that help people. And in the pandemic, it was absolutely unacceptable that we couldn't get unemployment benefits out the door to folks when people were losing their jobs during the beginning of the pandemic. My office at the legislature helped hundreds of people to kind of navigate a system that had literally broken down. And I don't think it's about issuing a press release and complaining. I did what I could as a legislator to try to fix from behind the scenes to make sure people could get their benefits. And there are a lot more people who were helped um, because of the work that I did in my office with my team. My frustration with how things are going right now, it is about management. I successfully managed the legislative branch for nine years, improving our policies, our procedures, our access to the legislative process. I know what it means to manage a branch what we have to make sure is we as leaders and as the next governor make sure that our agency directors are following through on achieving what we've asked them to do and supporting our line staff to take risk try new things and have their back when they are trying to innovate and do better customer service for Oregonians that's what I want to do as your next governor
0: And Tina, just a brief follow-up here, maybe 15 or 20 seconds. Tobias mentioned he's asking for the resignations of certain agency directors. Would you do the same as governor?
3: You know, I've heard that that idea, and I thought about that early on. But then I talked to an HR professional and said, look, we want to make sure that it's clear that the folks who are doing the day-to-day job have some stability. I think it's better to sit down with every agency director and say, prove to me you should still have this job. And if we're not in alignment, they won't have that job. But that is how you approach it. I don't think just asking everyone to resign and causing disruption is the right way to go.
0: Tobias, do you want to have a quick response there, maybe 10 seconds?
1: Well, I I think we may come back to that in the future. But I think there is a fundamental question. If things aren't working and the representative, the former commissioner uh, is is right, uh, I think we need to be open to some more drastic changes. All right, thank you both. Let's move on to our next question here.
0: Oregonians, by and large, are feeling pessimistic that we are essentially on the wrong track here. A December DHM survey of voters in the Tri-County area found 88% of those surveyed said quality of life is getting worse. 88%. That's up from 49% in 2017. Now, you were both first elected to the state legislature in 2006, 15 years ago. Do you disagree with the vast majority of voters that we are on the wrong track and why or why not? Tina, you'll go first here.
3: Well, I agree that people are angry and frustrated, and I share that frustration. Look, we have been through some very difficult years with the, with the pandemic, and you know it's not completely over. It's understandable people are hurting, they're frustrated, their lives have been upended, and they're looking for someone to say, where do we go next? So I'm not surprised by those numbers, but I'm running for governor because I am hopeful, and I found this when I was talking to Oregonians in other parts of the state, outside the metro area, but also in the metro area. People want to solve problems. They love Oregon. They want Oregon to be successful. So I think we take that pessimism and and work with folks to solve problems together so we can have the state we want to have. I'm not surprised by the frustration, but I want to jump in with folks and say, let's fix it because we all love the state and we want it to work.
0: Thank you, Tina. Tobias, your response, same question.
1: I agree with the the sentiment that's expressed in that poll. Uh, I don't think we have been on, on the right track for a while, and for me, that plays out in lots of different directions. Uh, one of the most significant, I think, is is something that we many of us feel in our own direct lives. Uh, my wife and I are are public school parents in the in the Beaverton area, and I don't know any family who feels good about the experience that's uh, been part of, of public school uh, through the pandemic. It has exposed a lot of vulnerabilities. And we have to be really clear um, the central role that that schools play uh, in our state. When a school closes, uh, it's, a, it's a kid that suffers. Their, their, their learning falls behind, their mental health might suffer. Um, we're often putting families into the difficult position of having to choose between uh, caring for their child or keeping their paycheck. And that, of course, is, is a, a burden that falls heavily, uh, most heavily on working families, uh, students of color, and women. And it has a central piece of the economy as well. So I think the key to getting back on the right track is executing, is matching our our promises with follow through and making sure um, that people regain their confidence. That's going to unlock a lot more capacity for us. And I think we have uh, a lot of work to do.
2: Thank you, candidates. Thank you, Tobias and Tina for that. We're gonna move on to our next question and we begin with with another poll. Polls in the Portland metro area show the issue of homelessness is the number one concern throughout the metro area and you can't go anywhere without people talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. What's been wrong with the way the city of Portland has handled the homeless crisis and how would your approach be different in the way the city and the state interact to try to get people off the streets? And we'll begin with Tobias on this one.
1: I think we have to bring urgency and seriousness. It is just not okay for us um, to, to continue to, to be complacent about this. There are people on the streets in unsafe, unhealthy conditions that are not fair to them. Uh, it's not fair to people who want to be safe in their neighborhoods and to, to businesses. And the, the challenging thing, the most frustrating thing for me is that money is available and we're not following through, we're not executing. So I think uh, it's a matter of that urgency, making sure that uh, transitional and emergency housing is uh, available with the wraparound services that people need. And In the long run, we're getting a lot more efficient and effective and, um, and cost effective in building permanent housing. Um, that's a need, obviously, and we're also losing the confidence of voters who have been supportive of funding mechanisms. But they're getting impatient; they're not seeing the uh, the, the units that they were promised. And so, our problem is going to get worse if we don't get that on, on to- We don't get on top of that. Uh, in the end, we have to recognize that what we are doing right now isn't working. And calling together uh, governments at all levels, uh, we shouldn't care about those jurisdictional squabbles. We've got to stop making excuses and start making progress.
2: And I a couple of follow-ups on, on this one for you, Tobias. Would you support a more assertive approach to tent camping and require people to move off the streets and into shelters? Got a quick quick answer there.
1: We have to make sure that there are those uh, available transitional uh, shelters and, and opportunities. But once we're there, yes, I think it is it is okay to say you have responsibilities to the other parts of, of community as well.
2: And if you're governor, would you support the state helping to pay for those shelters?
1: I think we have resources at the state level that we have to look at effective investments in. That's going to make it so much more possible uh, in the rest of the state. And it's not just the Portland problem, by the way, either. Uh, But yes, I think we have to look at all options.
2: And now, uh, Tina Kotek, just once again, what is wrong with the way the Portland has handled the homeless crisis? And how would your approach be different in the city and state interacting about this problem?
3: Yep, this is the number one issue that I hear from Oregonians in all parts of the states that I've, that I've been traveling to. Uh, and it looks different, different communities. And it is at a humanitarian crisis level in the Portland area. And it's not okay. It is not moral for people to be living in tents in their RVs. And I live in Portland. I see it every day. We got to change it. At the state level, as speaker, I worked really hard to make sure we could do what we could. For example, Project Turnkey where we converted, I led the way to convert motels across our state to get into transitional housing. We increased the shelter capacity in this state by 20% in only about seven months, 19 new shelters in 13 counties. That's the type of innovative work we need to see more of from the state. And the question about the state investing, I have led the way to make sure the state is providing more money to our local community. So what's the problem? Implementation. The adults in the so would room you- have to talk to each other. And what I would say is, uh, I'm not happy with Mayor Wheeler's performance. I've worked specifically to say, here's money for an RV park. Where is it yet? When I said, you need $2 million to clean up graffiti and trash on ODOT's property, it was there. I don't believe the city is focused in a way that they should. It is about being able to operationalize it. And as governor, we're going to have some different conversations about how to make that happen.
2: So you would be more involved as governor. Would you take a more assertive approach into tent camping? A lot of people uh, want to see that uh, happen to move people into shelters. Would you be more assertive in moving tent camping off the streets?
3: I think we have to be more assertive in the overall approach. But when it comes to having folks move into shelters, we need more homeless navigators on the street. It's in my plan to help people have that connection and trusting relationship to get people into shelter so they can move into permanency. Will take time but it will also take more people on the streets doing that work um, and uh, right now it's you can't move people unless there are more shelter and more transitional options we have to create those and i am so frustrated with the speed at which the city is doing this work and we can do it differently And as governor, I am the only one in this race who has worked on housing who understands the nuances of not only getting people in the shelter, getting them into permanency, building more affordable housing. And my plan will say we can end homelessness for our most vulnerable Oregonians in the next two years if we do it better. Resources aren't the only issue here. This is about people working together better.
0: Tobias, do you want to briefly respond to a comment there about sort of as an outsider that you haven't worked sort of specifically on housing there? Maybe 10 or 15 seconds
1: well i guess i would say uh we have worked on housing we play an important role in making sure that we uh issue state bonds uh and and if if the former speaker wants to take uh, all the credit for for working on housing i think it's reasonable to ask how it's going all right
0: let's yeah. move on to yeah. another topic that we yeah. are talking about here
3: i think so. yeah, yeah. I, I guess
0: absolutely so 30 seconds speaker Cote, go ahead
3: I think since i just had a meeting with the president yesterday i would just say a little bit malarkey to that about what you have been doing you haven't been in the arena working on this issue tobias you just simply haven't and if you the people who are endorsing me and supporting my race are the folks who have done housing housing development shelter work and with all due respect you haven't been doing the work at all
1: tobias how's how's it going
2: I think he, he's asking how how question. is the ho- homeless crisis going? Yes, how is housing people going? I think going? the question well, was how hey, is it going to you, but... governor, Tobias? It is not working because as governor,
3: the only way to change that is be in charge of the agencies and have the the authority to get local government leaders to work differently together, and you know that.
1: So here's the interesting thing about that. You were the most if a powerful governor or powerful legislator uh, in Oregon. You could summon those directors to your office at a moment's notice. Every budget uh, is a reflection of your decisions. Who has gavels in the House, Who, uh, what the agendas are in those committees are a reflection of your direction. So to now say that you could only do that, you were a lowly legislator without the effective ability to, to deal with that. I don't. I, don't I
3: actually didn't say that, Tobias. What I said was, I frankly, that's a simplistic answer there. I created housing committees, I created significant investments over the top of everyone. The Senate President is notorious for saying every time she came to my office she wanted more money for housing homelessness and i'm running for governor because with those investments and with the new laws on the books we should be doing better and that is an indictment of the state's inability to work with local leaders to make sure those investments are actually producing the outcomes and i'm tired of it that's why i'm running for governor
0: and i'm going to jump in here and just point out too that you are both part of the party that has been in power in this state for uh, a long time decades here in fact so we're going to move on though to another topic that's top of mind with a lot of voters and people in general and that is law and order so the question is Portland hit a grim record in 2021 with 90 homicides, the most in the city's history. This year, we are on track to pass that. 29 homicides so far. We're only at the end of April and hundreds of shootings. Now, they include everyone from a homeless man attacked downtown to a teenager, a high school student who was gunned down last weekend in southeast Portland and what police believe a drive by. The question here. What specific steps will you take as governor to address gun violence and make our streets safer? And do you feel safe walking through, for example, downtown Portland? Tina, you'll go first here.
3: Well, thank you for the question. I know a lot of Portlanders don't feel safe. I've lived in some pretty large cities and uh, I, in terms of my personal safety, I think we all have to be cautious. There, in every city in the country right now, as we come out of this pandemic recession, There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of increase in violence. And frankly, there are too many guns on the street. When I was speaker, I did what I could to make sure we were keeping guns out of the hands of folks who shouldn't have them, increasing our background checks, making sure that individuals who were domestic abusers couldn't have access to guns, passing a safe storage law that said, if you own a gun, store it safely so it can't get stolen or or have an accidental death. Those are good, but it's not enough. We need to ban and figure out how to get ghost guns off the streets We have to make sure that when violence in the community happens, that there's intervention and prevention to stop the cycle of violence. We need to make sure that our law enforcement can be there when they're needed, but also make sure that we have other professionals like Portland Street Response that can be there when someone's in a mental health crisis. We need a broader, deeper approach to community policing and we have to keep folks from committing violent acts in the first place. That means supporting them well in their schools, making sure they have what they need. A lot of folks are hurting right now and we have work to do to make sure we as a community can reduce this violence.
1: Thank you, Tina. Tobias, same question. We need to ban ghost guns. We need to ban high capacity magazines as uh, methods of reducing the, uh, the risk of uh, of mass shootings. We need a statewide gun buyback program to help safely remove uh, guns from Uh, from circulation. And we need more resources to law enforcement. That's going to, I think, look different in different communities. It's certainly going to include uh, accountability measures and alternative approaches along with those violence uh, interruption programs. But ultimately, uh, we need to make sure that law enforcement has the resources they need uh, to respond, particularly to, to gun crime and to illegal gun dealers.
2: And, and you mentioned resources. I wanted to follow up here, uh, Tobias. The mayor said, Mayor Wheeler said this week, the city needs more help with more resources from the feds and the state. Would you dedicate funding in your first budget as governor to reduce gun violence, specifically in Portland?
1: I would absolutely be interested in, in how to do that in partnership with with local governments. Uh, I think there there is all the reason in the world to suspect that uh, we're gonna be better off when those those resources are in place.
2: And, Tina, would you dedicate funding in your first budget as governor to reduce gun violence in Portland?
3: I know we we're hearing from President Biden that more resources are coming from the federal government, which has been the traditional funder of additional law enforcement outside local dollars. But, yes, at the state level, and I've done this, right? My last bill before I left the legislature was about accessing federal Medicaid dollars to have more community violence intervention and prevention in hospital settings when there are community violent incidents. Um, Yes, I think we can do that. That's why I also supported for the first time last year, the state funding models like Portland Street response, grants available for local communities to have that level of crisis response for folks in a mental health crisis. So yes, I think there's a role of the state with the federal government to make sure communities have what they need to keep people safe.
0: And let me just briefly ask you about this in terms of law enforcement and resources. Nearly two years after the death of George Floyd and all that followed after, What does defund the police mean to you today? Tina, let's go ahead with you first and maybe keep it to 45 seconds or so.
3: I think we need law enforcement that people in the community feel safe calling and and feel that they're responsible and accountable and making sure people don't interact with police in the first place. And that means making sure all communities have what they need to be successful. Right now, I think we have a lot of people hurting, so we need adequate police response Better community policing and frankly making sure folks have what they need to be successful so they don't get involved in with the police.
0: Tobias, same question to you. What does defund the police mean to you today?
1: Well, I think we need to learn the lessons of people who were really frustrated and and worried about their interactions with law enforcement and we need to take lessons from that Uh, around making sure that that police are effective and accountable Um, someone I know uh, well says I I don't want less police I want better police and I think that's a, a good summary for me
2: and you're talking about racial justice reform Tobias what additional steps would you support the legislature took some steps last session and this session as far as racial justice reform what more do you want to see
1: I want to see body cameras on on officers in Oregon. I think that's a first step to make sure that we have transparency and the ability to hold law enforcement accountable.
2: And Tina, what additional steps would you take as governor when it comes to racial justice reform? Well, first
3: of all, follow through on the significant historic legislation that was passed in 2020 and 2021 around increased accountability, transparency when people have bad conduct records, making sure training is better at the Department of Police Safety and Standards and Training. There are things we can do, and as governor, making sure that we follow through on those things. I think the, the next big thing is to make sure our public defense system is working. So when people should have legal access to representation, and right now our public defense system needs a lot of work.
2: I to move to the pandemic now. Uh, Oregon took an aggressive approach to mask mandates and other restrictions during the height of the pandemic. It helped Oregon have one of the lowest death rates from COVID in the country, but it also divided the state. Would you have done things any differently? And moving forward, do you see a scenario in which strict restrictions could come back? We'll begin with Tina Kotek on this.
3: Well, I will say I think the divide was there before the pandemic, um, or at least the perceived divide from folks who live in all parts of the state. We were successful as a state early in the pandemic in keeping people alive. Some tough choices were made about asking people to stay home, wear masks, be careful. And because of that, we did so much better than other states to keep people alive. There are a lot of people walking around today because we did those things. And I think it's been more complicated as the pandemic has progressed. As governor, I think one of the key things to do to, to reduce any kind of confusion or divide is to be as clear as possible about expectations and what the science is saying about what we should do. Um, I think um, when we asked local county public officials to do these things, they were reflecting the needs of their own communities. At the end of the day, I wanna make sure that we can keep everybody safe and we're all gonna take personal responsibility to do what we can, get vaccinated. If you're in a situation where you think you have to wear a mask, wear a mask. We all have to be responsible for each other as well as
2: ourselves. Is there a point, Tina, where you would ever reinstate a mask mandate?
3: As governor, I'm going to follow the science. I want to know what the experts say. I hope we don't have another search where we have to go back to any kind of enhanced public health protocols. And as governor, one of your main priorities is to keep people safe and alive. I hope we don't have to go there, but I will follow the science to make sure we do what we can to keep people safe and healthy.
2: So if the science points that way, you would reinstate a mask mandate? i think if requirement of having to wear masks for example in on airplanes
3: if it shows that we're seeing a surge around the country i personally would support having us back wearing masks in an airplane
2: so i think it's what about in oregon oregon though in general the mask mandate that we saw before
3: well i think it depends on what the science is saying and if it looks like the numbers are increasing and our hospital systems are failing then yes we need to be back to wearing masks until that that crisis passes
2: And Tobias talking about the pandemic would you have done anything differently and do you see a scenario in which strict restrictions could come back?
1: I think the governor Brown deserves a lot of credit for making some tough decisions early on and putting us in a better position as you said but I definitely uh, felt some frustration around the um, inconsistency of communication and as a a parent of of public school students uh, I was extraordinarily frustrated when we saw bars and restaurants open before we saw schools open. So I think being really clear about our, our priorities and consistent in our communications will, will help us uh, when we need to, to make those sacrifices. I think it would be irresponsible to say that there is no scenario in which masks or other uh, mandates might be necessary, but it's certainly not my, my preference.
2: Thank you, candidates.
0: All right, candidates, let's uh, stay sort of with the same topic in, in, in the health arena here, and let's talk about addiction in Oregon. This is an issue that impacts people from all walks of life, families, teenagers, seniors. Now, federal data shows we are the worst in the nation per capita when it comes to illegal substance abuse, and second worst when you include legal substances like alcohol. Now, Oregon also ranks last per capita for access to treatment despite having had a strategic plan ready to be implemented for over two years. What is more, the legislature had to pass a bill in the short session, essentially to force government agencies in this area to cooperate with each other, just to meet to begin to implement that plan. Experts who work in the area say the system is broken. They give it a grade of F. How would things be
1: different under your leadership? Tobias, we'll begin with you. Well, we start with that urgency again and make sure that we're not sending money to agencies that aren't prepared to deploy it. Um, it is. I know the the former speaker and I share the frustration here about what's happening with the Oregon Health Authority and the the dollars that are stuck there and not out uh, being deployed to to help people who are dealing with substance use disorder. Um, that can't happen. People are at risk. People are, um, are 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 desperate for those opportunities, and we're not delivering for people. Um, we have to. We should not be be reliant on the legislature to force people to uh, to 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 collaborate. And and all of these issues are connected, of course. Uh, People who are dealing with substance use disorder are more likely to be experiencing homelessness as well. And so uh, all of these things are are connected and they have to be treated with urgency.
0: Tina, your response here?
3: Yep. Uh, This is a top priority for me. My wife is a social worker. We talk a lot about how people can't get the help they need. When people are ill and ready to get help, whether it's a mental health issue or to get sober, those services need to be available. Timing is important in these situations. And my wife and I have talked about the system that is under immense pressure to produce, and it is not designed in a way to be effective and efficient. First of all, we have a workforce we don't pay well. We don't you know, give them adequate caseloads where they can actually do quality work. The legislature last year, at my leadership made sure we put another half a billion dollars into the system for this biennium, and most of that money hasn't touched a provider yet when we look at measure 110 and the redirection of marijuana revenue that voters approved same situation look here's i want to go into a room and say i know it's hard i know it's complex you might have a staffing issue but at the end of the day, we need to move the money and get it to the providers because people are literally dying because they cannot get access to the services that they need. That is not what we wanna see in Oregon. And I'm gonna get into the nitty gritty with a bunch of providers as soon as I have that job.
0: And let me just briefly follow up here, Tina, for with first with you, will you implement that strategic plan that has been in place since 2020 in your first year or two in office as governor?
3: Honestly, I think it doesn't have enough level of detail to say it's ready to be implemented. I want to stick with what we know we need right now. One ten dollars need to go out to providers who provide recovery services. We need additional residential capacity. We need to pay our workforce more through increased rates, particularly for low-income Oregonians on Medicaid. We can do very specific things right away and then come back and see if, if we're on track with that plan. And Tobias, same to question: Would you
0: would you implement that strategic plan during that for your first year in office as governor?
1: I think we have to make it a priority and move in that direction for sure.
2: We're gonna move on to uh, education has been mentioned, but I wanna dig into this a little bit. Uh, Tina, this will be your question first. After two years of mostly distance learning during the pandemic, a study from Brookings shows reading and math scores have dropped for US students and the gap is wider in higher poverty schools. What plan do you have for Oregon students to catch up academically?
3: Yeah, I know that the statistics are showing that across the country, and that's not the kind of educational outcomes we want for our students. And let's face it, our children and young people have been through a very traumatic two years, and some folks are back in school in person, and they're developmentally behind in terms of where they should be. So there are a lot of things we have to work on in our schools. When I look at those test scores, I think they're not a good indicator where anything is right now. So what do we do about it? Um, I was a big fan and champion of doing more summer learning you know making sure there are other opportunities outside the school year where students can get reacquainted with their peers, have different developmental opportunities and, you know, progress academically and make up. We need to make sure that we don't make any cuts in our schools right now, make sure we can lower classroom sizes. Frankly, we shouldn't spend a lot of extra hours doing the standardized testing, which doesn't mean a whole lot right now. We should be focusing on -on one-on-one instruction with our students to have what they need so they can stay on track to graduate. And I believe with the student success dollars that were implemented in 2019 that I helped pass, we will have those resources to do that.
2: And Tobias, what steps would you take to help students catch up academically?
1: This is a really personal thing for me. We have a a daughter who's in seventh grade. Uh, We have a son who is in third grade. And I have been frustrated about this through the pandemic. I have not been shy about uh, calling out my my friends um, and and asking for for the urgency that I think we need in, in getting schools open on a much faster rate. But looking forward, I think we have to learn the lessons from the pandemic. Make sure that uh, students have a, a fair start um, to, their, to their experience in, in schools. I think universal pre-K is important. I think real uh, investments in, in the evolving science of how students learn to read. Um, the predictive power of whether a student is on track in third grade is is enormous. Um, and we do have a lot of opportunities to, um, to, to fill gaps, to allow people to uh, catch up on something they've struggled with or add enrichment opportunities over the summer gap. Finally, I think we can't overlook uh, the need for mental health capacity in schools for, for educators and for students alike. There's some interesting models about how to bring that capacity into schools and add to the, uh, the pipeline and that workforce that I think we ought to be looking closely at. Right. Let's talk
0: about rural Oregon issues. The poorest counties in Oregon with the highest poverty rates are rural counties. They include Malheur, Wheeler, Klamath and Lake. What plan do you have to address rural Oregon issues, which include everything from homelessness to extreme drought, to not having their views adequately represented by lawmakers in Salem and to help Oregonians who live there
1: thrive? Tobias, let's begin with you here. I was raised in Idaho, so I, I plan to take advantage of that background in talking to people. Uh, and I think it is a matter of showing up with some humility, not with the idea of saying I'm here to to impose a particular vision on a community. I want to hear what they perceive to be their opportunities and and the barriers. Uh, to recognize that the state can play a role in removing barriers and offering uh, opportunities to states uh, to to individual communities in the state. There are there are some things that will be useful all over the state. High speed internet, for example, and then I think there are there's great value in understanding the, the regional strengths that vary across the state. It might be precision agriculture somewhere, or uh, mass timber somewhere else, or offshore wind along the coast. Uh, all of those things I think can contribute to the idea that we have a stake in in the wider success of the state that that spans border to border. Tina, same question to you.
3: Yeah, and this is a really important question. There's a lot in the question you asked, so I'm going to take a, a, a part of it. Um, I, I do feel and believe that people feel left out. They left out. Of, they feel left out of the conversations in other parts of the state. Um, and let's not forget, we have um, some lower income communities right in the metro area. We have some very rural areas of Clackamas County and Washington County. So this idea that rural is everywhere, somewhere outside of Portland, I don't think is true. So what I would say is, I think it's really important for the next governor and something that I will embrace 100% is to make sure you have everybody at the table so they feel heard. But that doesn't happen in Salem. You need to be in people's communities with them listening, doing a lot of listening, because in most cases, local communities know how to solve their issues. They know what they're looking for. They know what they need. And as a state leader being a partner to make sure they have, whatever that's, you know, reducing red tape or getting a certain amount of of seed money to kind of start a new project. Those are the things that a state leader can do. As governor, I wanna spend less time in Salem, more time around the
2: state, working with individuals and leaders who know what they need and just need a little bit more of a helping hand from the state want to ask you a follow-up, Tina, because a lot of Republican representatives really didn't feel like you worked with them in the legislature. Um, would it be different if your governor, with you reaching out to Republican lawmakers and their constituents, than it was when you were House Speaker? Well, certainly the legislature is a very partisan environment, but what I will say is, as Speaker, I was the Speaker for
3: the entire state. My job was to make sure that all other 59 other members of the house were successful making sure they had what they needed for their communities whatever that was a project or a particular issue any my door was always open for any member republican or democrat in fact i went so far as to pair up house republicans and house democrats together to say go visit each other's districts go learn what it means to live in a more rural community or at an urban community in my case my last visit was with Rep. Werner risky in klamath falls and he came to north portland that type of Dialogue and understanding of where people live and what the situation is is going to improve our public policymaking. And as a speaker, I was very committed to that. Every part of the state has to succeed. That's good for the whole state.
0: And Tobias, just a brief follow up for you: to um, in your opening, you said something along the lines of what we are doing today isn't working. And I just want to say, some voters will say you're
1: part of what we're doing today. So how would you briefly respond to that concern? Well, I haven't been setting the legislative agenda for the last uh, nine or 10 years. I've been managing the Treasury very successfully and managing our state's portfolio and delivering programs uh, to people who, who want to be in a better financial position. So we've done that in a way that uh, uh, has brought people together and, and increased uh, public support. So I think that's a model uh, for what is working and uh, what we can take into the, uh, into the governor's office, because I've got that record of listening to people and, and building those coalitions.
2: We're soon going to go to the lightning round, but I did really want to get this question in uh, about climate change. You know, I talked with a young climate activist on Straight Talk not long ago. Grant Grant High School sophomore, Ada Crandall, and she was out there with a lot of youth activists yesterday uh, protesting when President Biden was here trying to get his attention. She said she feels like she's been misled, sort of duped by the city of Portland when it comes to making a difference on climate change. She told me she was taught the little things would reduce her carbon footprint to recycle, to compost, to bike places. But she says it's not enough, not nearly enough. The city remains far from meeting its climate goals what significant concrete move do you pledge to make as governor that young people like ada who say climate change is one of their biggest fears it keeps them up at night what that would really make a difference to them and i'll begin with tina i am so impressed by our young people and their and their commitment
3: to keeping us the adults accountable and doing our part climate change is the biggest issue of their lives and the biggest issue of our own lives. We are feeling the impact now. And uh, I've been a climate champion, that's why I'm endorsed by the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, fighting for 100% clean electricity, making sure we can reduce, um, you know, air pollution and water pollution. There are many things we can do, but who the next governor is will matter because right now, some of the things we're doing were done by executive order by the current governor. We need to have a governor who's not going to, you know, go back on our word and go backwards. We need to progress. We need to do more. And it's going to take all of us. city of Portland can't do it by themselves. The whole state has to be committed to meeting our carbon reduction goals so we can do our part to make sure climate change does not get any worse.
2: Can you give us like one significant move you'd make that might impress Ada?
3: Well, I think uh, one of the jobs as the governor is to make sure that our agencies are following their climate action plans. And when it comes to the Department of Transportation, making sure that ODOT is using the new federal dollars in a way that actually reduces emissions, helps people get into different modes of transportation, particularly in the Portland metro area, transit, bicycle, and pedestrian. But it's not... That is not enough. We have to do more in our transportation sector, get more people into zero emission vehicles. I also think we need to take on methane. As we all know from the recent UN report, while methane might not be as prevalent, its impact is substantial. And we have to reduce methane emissions in our state. And we have to hold our fossil fuel companies accountable to do that.
2: And Tobias, what significant move would you make as governor to really make a difference when it comes to climate change?
3: Well,
1: I think we have to live up to the goals that we've set in 2040, and I think there are three things in particular that, that can make the difference. Embracing offshore wind and getting a lot faster about how to implement that. Getting a lot faster in, in, in building out electrical, electric vehicle charging infrastructure and building a, a secondary market for electric vehicles. And being a lot better about energy efficiency in buildings, uh, homes and, and offices alike. While we do that, we have to keep in mind that we can't leave vulnerable communities behind because these policies and these opportunities affect different populations differently.
2: I'm gonna call an audible here. We're gonna get some questions from uh, our City Club members in a moment, but I wanna drop one in here because it relates to what we're talking about. This is from Marsha and one of the things that the youth activists youth climate activists have been calling for is stopping freeway expansion so marsha asks can youth and future oregonians count on you to veto any budget that includes funding for freeway expansion tobias
1: i think we need to make sure that we are including uh, audits of of uh, uh, the effects of those but i think it would be Uh, It would be irresponsible to say that in every circumstance, that that is required. The climate and environmental justice audit needs to be part of our our, uh, process, but there may be places where uh, an upgrade on a safety basis could be considered an expansion by some people, and I I don't want to make a commitment that I can't keep.
2: So that's a no, and Tina, can youth and future Oregonians count on you to veto a budget that would support uh, funding for freeway expansion?
3: I do think, and I have supported in the past, making sure that our current highway infrastructure is safe and adequate. That does not mean an expansion. And I do think you know, how you define expansion is critical here. I wanna make sure that we have safe interchanges where people can move safely um, because that's important. But I do not believe we need additional highway infrastructure. And so if that's the question, brand new expansion, brand new expansion, I would say no. I would not
2: support, but that. on the on the Rose Quarter, you would support expanding the freeways there, and also on the I five bridge replacement. I think that's a twelve lane freeway. Well, we're still in the that. design.
3: We're still in the design phase of the I five bridge. I believe we can have a much uh, more reasonable design there that meets the safety goals of having. We need to replace a bridge, but doing it in a way that we facilitate. Different types of transportation is not as large as previous options have been. And in the Rose Quarter, um, it's about redesigning the interchanges to make it safer. I
2: don't believe we need to make it substantially larger. Tobias, did you want to mention anything about the I-5 bridge replacement or the Rose Quarter expansion?
1: Well, the former Speaker and I worked uh, together in our previous effort when our friends in Washington did not... uh, uh, join us. So I think we are aligned about the the need for a replacement bridge. There, um, it is disappointing that we are uh, back farther into that process in a in a project that is almost certainly to, almost certain to cost more uh, than the previous versions. Uh, so I think we're I think we're well aligned there. It is largely about safety uh, and and adequacy.
2: And you're talking about the Columbia River crossing that died in 2014. Hey candidates, take a breath. It's time now for the lightning round. Ah, In this section, we ask you to keep your responses to no more than one word or phrase, depending on the question. So uh, I'll begin with Tina Kotek. What do you do on your day off when you take a day off? Go to the movies. <laughs> Ed, uh, Tobias.
1: I- I'm on the sidelines at the uh, Little League game or the Rec Soccer League for our kids.
2: And Tobias, who is the leader you admire most? Hard
1: to say most, but someone I really admire uh, in general, uh, Governor Roberts, and I'm, I'm happy to have her support in uh, in this race.
2: And Tina?
3: Oh, I think locally, one of the people I look up to is uh, the late Vera Katz, her a time in the legislature being the first female speaker, and just the way that she ran Portland, you know, kept the city from flooding. I and mean, she was amazing. And I, I like her can-do attitude and her steeliness. Uh, it's something I admire.
0: We appreciate your enthusiasm there. It was more than one sentence, though, which is what we asked for here. But we're going to move on. One word or phrase. Uh, Tina, this is you first. What is one word to describe Oregon right now?
3: One word right now? It is always beautiful.
1: Tobias. Uh, strained.
0: Tobias, the first thing you did when the mask mandate was lifted.
1: Uh, wow. I, don't, I think probably just being uh, uh, inside and and happy to be with some other people. I know that's not a word, but uh, what? Well, not a single word, but hard to hard to come up with one. <laughs> Tina,
3: we hadn't been eating out a lot. I took my wife out for a nice Valentine's Day. All
2: right, Tina, give us one word or phrase to describe yourself. Persistent. Tobias.
1: Uh, collaborative.
2: And Tobias, one word or phrase to describe your opponent, Tina. Driven. And Tino, how would you describe in one word or phrase, Tobias? Friendly.
0: Tina, what's your vision as governor in one word?
3: Opportunity.
1: Tobias. If it's if we can have a phrase, I would say uh, shared ambition. Okay, two words—that's all right. Yeah. And Tobias, what is the last book you read? Oh, the last book uh, was a, a fiction uh, book called uh, "Great Circle" uh, about a, a, a woman who was an aviator in the fifties, thirties,
3: forties, fifties. Tina, last book? I have a lot of books half read, but the one I actually finished most recently was "Being Mortal" by Atuka one day. Good book.
2: And your favorite restaurant in Oregon, Tina?
3: Oh, there's too many. I'm gonna name my favorite in North Portland, which would be uh, Swift and Union. And Tobias?